Before we start today's show, I could really use your help with something. As you know, Master Brewers is an association run by some of the hardest working folks in the brewing industry. They all have jobs, but also serve the association as volunteers in lots of different ways. I need your help filling a volunteer role that, in my opinion, is one of the simplest but most important jobs. It's super easy, doesn't take much time at all, but is critical to the value of membership and to this podcast. If you're willing to help me out and give back to this incredible association, please take a minute to go to masterbrewerspodcast.com slash working group to learn more. This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This episode was made possible by the following sponsors. Discover more ways to enhance flavor and maximize beer yields with Salvo. Now available in varieties like Sultana, Trident, Lotus, Calypso, Cascade, and many more. Discover how Salvo can help boost your brew at hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. And thanks also to Brew Ninja, a brewery software solution that streamlines your day-to-day operations, including inventory, accounting, sales, and compliance, so that you can focus on making great beer. Listeners of this podcast will receive a unique offer by going to GetBrewNinja.com and using the code BrewNinja21. The grower is going to do what the brewer wants because that is their customer. So if there's like substantial energy savings from a sustainability perspective for drying at a higher temperature and the aroma quality of the hops is not going to be impacted, then there's some some really big wins, I think, for both sides. This week on the show, OSU probes the sustainability of hops from kiln cycles to double dry hopping. Hi, I'm Lindsay Rubottom. I'm a PhD candidate at Oregon State University in Dr. Tom Shellhammer's lab. Yeah, hi, I'm Tom Shellhammer, professor of Fermentation Science at Oregon State University. Sustainability is a topic increasingly on the minds of brewers. In fact, it's the theme of the upcoming Brewing Summit in Rhode Island, where I hope I'll see you both. We've talked about the carbon footprint of malt back on episode 206. What can you tell us about the carbon footprint of hops? What does the breakdown of the various drivers look like for hops? So what happened a few years ago is uh, my or previous graduate student in the lab, Dean Hauser, kind of took an in-depth look looking at the life cycle assessment of hops in the hop industry in general. And from that, we found that kilning actually is a huge portion of the energy contribution as far as when you're kind of looking at those statistics. All right. Not a, not a huge surprise. I mean, you know, that's obviously the, a very energy intensive step. But when we looked at malt, we saw, you know, big numbers from like fertilizer and things like that. W- what else did you see? What, what else was a big contributor? So the fertilizer was a portion of it, but the other big portion was the agricultural machinery. So that kind of gets kind of the same place that you're when you're looking at kilning and you're thinking of the fuel that takes to run the agricultural machinery to go out and spray your hop yard or the fuel that you're going to be using to run your kilns for that six week window of the year. Yeah, hop growers are in their fields a lot. Um, it's a pretty intensive crop to grow. So they may be spraying on a weekly basis during the spring. With Like this year, we have huge downy and powdery mildew pressure because it was cold and wet. And so the growers are in there all the time. And so each one of those runs up and down the row 
uh, you do that, say, 15 times a year, adds up in terms of, of um, fuel costs. There's been a lot of research related to the kilning of hops for various reasons. Before we get too far, maybe give us an overview of that kilning process. Yeah. So when you're thinking of the kilning process, the hops have to come out of the field and they're wet. They're at like a 70 to 80% moisture content. And if you tried to store them that way, you would, they would degrade, they would compost, they wouldn't keep their quality. So kilning is the step that we use to preserve hops and they're dried down to moisture content somewhere between like eight to 12% typically. So that then they are cold stored and then kept for a year, multiple years for brewers to be able to use them. And, you know, historically, we would dry hops at a higher temperature when we're mostly focused on alpha hops for bittering. But with the rise of aroma hops, there was thoughts like, oh, well, is higher temperature going to impact those aroma volatiles? And how do we preserve them? So then there was this drive to start moving the kiln temperatures lower as aroma hops in the U.S. became more and more popular. In U.S. hop kilns, they're 32 by 32 feet on a, in a commercial kiln, and they're packed anywhere from 25 to 32 inches deep. So if you get like a 30, 32-inch bed depth, they're, these, are, these are deep kilns with a lot of hops in them, and you're going to get this gradation of moistures in the bed. So there's a lot of things the hop grower in the kiln is trying to control. So it's making sure you don't overdry your hops at the bottom and the top. And then trying to keep it as even as possible where you can't necessarily do that, but you also have an issue with capacity where you want to fill those kilns as high as you can without sacrificing quality, but you want that capacity to be kept high because you really only have maybe 10 kilns in your hop yard to be drying hops and you have six weeks to get all of your hops picked and dried. And then that kind of gets into this with the bed depth the difference between different hop varieties where you have a variety like Centennial. We've talked to a lot of growers. Centennial is notoriously hard to dry and it just kind of sits in the kiln and it kind of stews because of the cone structure and size. But then when you look at a variety like Mosaic, that comes with its own like issues because it's high yielding. So they have a hard time keeping up with the number of cones that they're picking from the field in the kilns. And they pack into the kiln pretty tightly, but they dry relatively faster. So it's like different varieties come with different sets of issues. And your lab did a study looking at the difference between these kiln cycles at 130 versus 150 degrees Fahrenheit. Talk about what you wanted to uncover there and how you went about it. So this study came from kind of, there was like a study before this where we looked at two varieties, Simcoe and Amarillo, dried at 120, 140, and 160, and even up to 180 degrees Fahrenheit. And from that study, we found that there wasn't really big difference in aromatic quality from a sensory and a chemistry perspective. So then it became the question like, okay, for Simcoe and Amarillo, we see these trends. Well, what about these other really popular aroma varieties like Cascade, Centennial, Citra, Mosaic, and then also include Amarillo and Simcoe in that? And we wanted to do that without looking at, we didn't need to do such a wide range like 120, 140, 160, because growers aren't typically going to dry their hops at 160 degrees Fahrenheit. That's fairly aggressive heat. And then 120 is so low that that's going to, your hops would take forever to dry. And that project, I think some of the 120 treatments took like 14 hours to dry, which doesn't make sense if you have a capacity issue like a bottleneck at the kiln so we targeted more realistic highs and lows that the industry uses in drying with these 130 and 150 treatments on these popular aromatic varieties so that we can get a breadth of six different varieties in how they might behave at high and low kilning temperatures i believe you did this over um over like a two-year period right yes. this wasn't just yeah over yeah so it's with this kind of data, it's good to have multiple years because then you can look at how different year to year variations could change aroma quality. So we were able to do this over two harvest years at um, the same farms. So for each variety, so say we did uh, cascade trials at farm A. And we went back in the following year in 2021 and did 
trials at Farm A again on Cascade so that we're working with the same kiln, the same grower, the hops would theoretically be treated the same in their like uh, metrics for maturity and things like that for um, harvest. Yeah, I think it's helpful to, to, to keep in mind that when you think of uh, growers drying hops, they, they don't dry hops the same way. It's really interesting. It seems like a pretty straightforward process, put hops in a kiln and turn on the heat. But growers will dry with different bed uh, thicknesses because they have different ideas around how they want the, the hops to dry, which results in different um, cycle times in the kiln. They might dry at different um, temperatures. Uh, not like within the farm, but like between farms, some farms have a different set point. Uh, so let's say 135 versus 120 or versus 145. And so these, these impacts the, the rate at which the, the hops will dry it. And as I mentioned, the, the cycle time in the kiln. So it's helpful to have different growers participating and so you kind of get a sense of, of that. And while the study wasn't designed to, to try to get the entire diversity of how hops are dried, having multiple growers in multiple states, uh, and it gives some robustness to the data. And I guess they probably they probably have to make adjustments for you know if the humidity is a different level this year than it was at the same time last year or something like that, right? They do to to a certain degree. The, the typical cycle time that you'll see in um, uh, in and hop drying will be somewhere between let's say six or seven hours on the short end and maybe maybe 10 or 11 hours on the high end would you agree Lindsay? yeah i i agree and the high end is going to be for varieties like centennial like centennial and so a, a grower will then basically do two turns on that kiln maybe three turns on that kiln in a 24-hour period and so the the dew point that the air is at as they're drying varies throughout the day. So when they're drying at night, at higher dew point, or let's say they're drying early in the morning between let's say five and eight in the morning, that's when the dew point will be the highest. So the the moisture content of the air coming into the kiln will be higher and, and the moisture content of the hops that have been picked will be higher because they'll be sitting, they might actually like in middle morning, they might or early morning, they might actually have dew on the, the plants themselves. So these things impact the, the, the variability that you will see in drying time and drying performance. So from an analytical chemistry standpoint, which is only part of the picture, um, you mentioned earlier that there were not massive differences across a wider range of temperature. Is it safe to assume that you saw the same thing here or uh, were these completely different hops? No, we saw very, very similar results here across these uh, six different varieties. We saw that the difference between 130 and 150, that reduction in analytes wasn't very high. And we saw that for almost all cases. There was a case where Simcoe was, it was the first year in 2020. There were some differences in uh, hop aroma and reductions as far as from those like terpene profile and we didn't see the same thing for Simcoe. So there is definitely some year-to-year variation in quality to consider but overall we found that chemistry is not impacted from a kiln temperature perspective. Which I think when we first started this study you know with the 120, 140, 160 we were sort of surprised because the, the, the conventional wisdom is that hops are really sensitive to temperature and at least for on the commercial scales that we've seen and also on some pilot scale um, trials, the the hops seem to be much less temperature sensitive than we had anticipated. doesn't mean that they're completely insensitive, but yeah, you know, like that, that the trial that Lindsay talked about where we killed some Amarillo at 180 Fahrenheit, like people were like shocked that why would you even do that? You can do that, right? Yeah. We did on a yeah. small pilot scale. <laughs> yeah. But when we, looked at the chemistry, we were really surprised at how similar the chemistry was from hops that were dried at 120. And those, you know, one possibility, maybe that just the hops um, move through the kiln so quickly when you're drying them that fast that yeah. uh, the residence time is really short. But anyway, the, the hops chemistry didn't look that different. And when we gave those hop samples blind to growers, 
not to growers, but to brewers and just were asking open-ended comments. Um, it was interesting how some of the open-ended comments came back that, what, what, what were some of the things? Oh, like, gosh, that the 180 was, was the most true to type out of what they saw. <laughs> Had the highest interest yeah. in overall hop aroma and like intensity to it. It was very, and it was like bright, no like off aromas. It was very interesting. Yeah. They were shocked. Yeah. Well, we spent so, so much time like looking at these samples thinking, okay, are we doing something wrong? Like we think like there should be a difference, right? And then yeah. the more like we had added years and years on this project, we're like, there's there's just not a difference i'm sure that was yeah. music to the growers ears <laughs> well maybe yeah exactly uh, although it's it's interesting i think that some of the the either the traditions or just the the way that that growers have in their their idea of how hops should be dried um it's hard they're unwavering in, in some regards you know this is what they do as their business and we're scientists you know probing this um and it was interesting studying in science of like okay let the data tell us rather than trying to go in with these preconceived ideas but um but you're right if if the hop can, if the hops are not uh, adversely affected by um higher temperatures then killing at higher temperatures has the potential to open up some interesting doors from a an efficiency perspective in terms of the ability to if, if hops are moving through the kiln quicker the, the growers have the ability to pick different fields uh um with greater flexibility, knowing that they don't have as big a bottleneck on the killing process. Yeah. Okay. What about enzymes, Tom, you've been on the show several times to discuss hop enzymes as they relate to hop creep. How does a 130 versus a 150 kill cycle change a, a brewer's fermentation outcomes? Yeah. I think that's an interesting thing. The, the, the thing that did change consistently across all varieties and across all farms and across all harvest years was that higher temperatures resulted in lower enzymatic activity of the hops themselves. So that was kind of neat to see. And, it, and it's, it's, it's not terribly surprising because, okay, they, these, these are enzymes and they should have some temperature sensitivity to them. You're essentially denaturing them as you, as you dry at higher um, killing temperatures. So it was reassuring to see that. I think what, what is interesting to see is that there's a pretty broad variation in um, inherent enzymatic activity within a variety. And you know, we're still trying to peel back the layers of the onion to figure out what is it that's driving the, um, the differences, whether it's is it maturity, is it um, regionality, is it climate, is it variety, is it microbiome, you know. Uh, one thing that does seem to be consistent, though, is that there are these varietal differences. And for instance, Citra seems to be on the lower end, and Cascade seems to be on the higher end. And um, go ahead. Oh yeah, no, it was just that we saw that across multiple harvest years, where Cascade was sitting at the higher end of enzymatic activity. So it's a creepier hop. And yeah. <laughs> we have something like Citra, which consistently is sitting at the lower end, regardless of like the temperature treatment, the Citra, even at 130 or 150 is lower than Cascade across the two harvest years, which is like interesting to see from this variety to variety variation. But I think another thing that's interesting to see in this, though, is that, that while we see these consistent uh, impact of kiln temperature on hop enzyme activity that is higher temperatures result in a reduction in enzyme activity relative to a lower drying temperature the the differences may or may not be borne out in the cellar because those varieties that have high inherent enzymatic activity like cascade the impact that killing temperature has while it's certainly pronounced on our lab-based assay we have a bioassay that's that looks at the the degree to which the hop sample results in um, hydrolysis of beer dextrins and the production of these fermentable sugars, that when you when you do a trial on a pilot scale and look at you know an actual fermentation, in some cases those temperature differences show sort of nuanced effect in the fermenter, and I think that's because the hop just has such a high enzymatic activity that even though you've reduced it, you haven't reduced it low enough to have an impact. Well, hop varieties that have inherently lower levels of enzymatic activity, then you really start seeing this pronounced effect that is hops dried at higher temperature. Um, you can see a, a measurable difference in the hop creep potential um, 
in like a fermentation in, in the cellar uh, on a pilot scale. Just curious, um, how much of that effect do you think is due to, uh, to, to micro? You know, we had Charlie Bamforth uh, on the show last year talking about the, the paper that he presented with uh, the folks from Miyagi University um, looking into, you know, microorganisms as the, as the cause of these enzymes. Right. Um, you know, it would, it would obviously make sense that if you get that temperature high enough and you kill off some of those microorganisms, you know, what do you think about that? I don't think that the enzyme, I mean, the, the micro source is really the main source of these enzymes. Um, we, when we look at the um, year-to-year uh, variation or, or lack of variation among different varieties, and in separate studies where we've, we've done some regional identity slash terroir um, uh, work, we've, um, we don't see tremendous regional differences that um, would indicate that there is some you know, inherent thing that's, that's changing, for instance, could be um, microbiota. We know that there's differences in soil composition. We know there's differences in weather as well as climate, like for instance, between Yakima Valley and Walnut Valley. But the differences that we look at, we see in the enzyme activity is not really, there's no really strong like correlations between that. So it makes me think that, okay, there's something other than our regional differences or um, microbiota differences. Um, and you know, the, it, it, um, it's not surprising that the plants have, um, dextrin or starch related enzymes. I mean, that's, if a plant photosynthesizes, they need yeah, to be able it to, that. it needs that. Right. So it's like, yeah. it should not be a surprise. Well, now looking back, it should not be a surprise. First time we're like, Oh, this seems really surprising. But talking to some plant physiologists, they're like, Oh, okay. So it's like kind of how plants survive in, right, at night. Right. I'm like, oh, okay, that sort of makes sense. Um, we do ha- we have in a separate study looked at maturity, and we've done we're still you know in the early stages of that. But when we look at hot maturity, like with citra, we see a pretty consistent correlation that that hops picked later have lower enzymatic activity, and we've seen that in like the 120, 140, 160. Um, um, trials that Lindsay did, and that's that kind of that that initial result is what drove this interest in looking at hop maturity. That is, when we would do these trials on farm, we would have two reps that would come from the farm, and rep two was always the second rep because, and well, sometimes rep two was as much as a week later, right? Because of demands and scheduling, working on a hop farm, and it just kind of ended up being like, oh, you can come back in a week and continue your Simcoe trials. And we would see these difference in enzymatic activity. So we started thinking like, oh, can we probe this? Like, is maturity something that's right. going to... And rep two, we should that. point out, rep two is always lower in enzyme activity than rep one. So we're like, huh, okay, why is rep two always lower? So uh, so there are some things that, that are showing correlations, like maturity. Um, and back to that terroir study, when we looked at... at um, one of the treatments was just the disease pressure. And it was interesting to see in, in um, we had two farms that were managed by the same grower in different parts of the Walnut Valley. And one had really high disease pressure and one had relatively low disease pressure. And when I say about high disease pressure, we, we basically measure that by the amount of sprays that they have to put on the field. So, and when I talked to the farm manager, I said, well, if you're putting more sprays on, you should have things under control more. There should be less organisms. He says, no, it's just the opposite. You're just like fighting a fire. <laughs> you just put in yeah. more water trying to control this fire. Um, and it was interesting to see that that field that had the high disease pressure actually had lower um, hop enzyme activity relative to the one that had less pressure. Now, these the disease pressure and maturity um, are kind of interrelated because the hops are... are um, they're picked within a relatively narrow window, um, and they're also, let's say, they're photosensitive plants. And so, um, as much as growers are trying to manage maturity when they pick, there are these other demands that that sort of dictate when hops will be picked. And so, anyway, it could be that these higher fungal load plants had they on a dry matter basis they had um higher dry matters which is and one of, of a handful of indicators that would show it had higher maturity so 
what was interesting is that the, the, the fungal load correlated with, in this case, in this, this subset, correlated with hop enzyme activity, but it was inversely correlated. That is, higher fungal load had less enzyme activity, which we don't know if that's a, you know, like a response to fungal activity or is, could it be a you know, maturity issue? So, um, so I would say that, that the micro part, I'd still leave open the possibility that there's a micro influence, but I don't think it's a, a, it's a large one. And, and back to that terroir study, we've done some soil microbiome analysis and we've done some hop microbiome analysis and those results are, will be forthcoming. We, don't, we haven't dug into them yet, but it'll be interesting to see, are there large regional differences in microbiome that are um, also associated with hop variety? Because the, what um, the Bamforth paper was saying is that, okay, these, these hop enzymes are fungal origin. Well, then that means that these different varieties need to have different microbial communities that are associated with them. And those microbial communities are highly dependent upon the hot variety, not upon the location or the, or the agronomic practices. And so, you know, it'll, some, some hot microbiome studies will confirm that or, or refute that. Coming up. As you put more and more hops into the dry hopping bill, how does that impact the, the overall hoppiness of the finished beer? I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support. Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation works with your existing fermentation tanks to track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity in real time from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Get started for 30 days risk-free. Visit precisionfermentation.com MBAA. This episode is brought to you by BSG, home of Pathfinder Yeast and Nutrient for hard seltzer and FMB production. With an all-in-one yeast and nutrient package, Pathfinder TY Pure delivers a clean, neutral-based seltzer that's ready for flavoring. Already have a yeast strain to pitch? Pathfinder N-Pure Nutrient helps it adapt to the unique conditions of a sugar fermentation and avoid off flavors. Let Pathfinder help you find your way Ask us how at go.bsgcraft.com slash contact us. Are you looking to improve yield, quality, and sustainability in your cellar? Alpha Laval has over 60 years of brewing experience, offering centrifuges, dealkalization systems, yeast plants, and complete cold block cellar projects designed for the most gentle and efficient treatment of your beer, cider, hard seltzer, or other beverages. Let the leaders in brewing innovation help you meet your greatest production and sustainability goals. Visit alphalaval.us slash MBAA to learn more. KegShoe is trusted by hundreds of breweries around the world to track and manage keg fleets, empower sales teams, and gain new insights into how their beer is treated from distributor to tap. KegShoe. Sell more, lose less, deliver your best. For more info or to get started with keg tracking, CRM, or smart monitoring, visit kegshoe.ca slash podcast. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. What to do when you screw up a DEI webinar on July 26th. District Northern Illinois has a summer shop talk at Crust Brewing July 29th. District Midwest meets in Columbus, Ohio, July 30th. The annual District Texas meeting at End of the Hills begins August 5th. The 2022 Brewing Summit 
that's the combined meeting with Master Brewers and ASBC, is August 14th through the 16th in Rhode Island. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Now back to the show. You've also got some sensory data. Walk us through some of that. Yeah. So for in 2020 and 2021, we had our internal panel evaluate hop grinds, but we also sent samples out to the industry. So we had, oh, I think it was like seven or so, like hop industry, hop and brewing industry panels evaluate these samples. So they received blind coded 130, 150 samples from whatever varieties interest them within the study. And they were able to run um, triangle tests or tetrad tests with their sensory panels and then kind of help feed the data for the hop grinds. And it was really interesting to see in that, like with these brewing industry uh, panels is a lot of the times there wasn't differences found. Um, which was very interesting in some of the varieties that they looked at. And then on the other side, we also did single hop IPA brewing trials and a subset of the breweries also did single hop IPA brewing trials and then subsequent sensory analysis. And while we found like some uh, differences in the like triangle test or tetrad test, these discrimination tests to determine if there was a difference, we saw that a lot of the times we could find differences within the hop grinds, but once you moved that into beer, the differences couldn't were harder to discern. So less varieties were popping up as difference with, different between the 130 and 150 treatment. And the varieties that we did find differences in, the 130 and 150 single hop IPAs, we moved forward to do something called a forced choice test. So we gave three to four attributes for each of the beers and said, okay, which of these beers is higher overall hop aroma intensity or higher uh, resinous or citrus characteristic and had the panelists choose which beer was higher in that specific attribute. And these attributes were selected based on our internal panel evaluations, kind of like saying like, what are big aromas in these beer? And then using the guidelines from YCH and John I. Haas to kind of make sure that we're capturing the important aroma attributes of these hop varieties. And in that, we found that only the centennial treatment from 2020, the 130 was found to be more resinous than the 150. After that, all of the 2021 samples that we evaluated in single hop IPAs, the places where differences were found, panelists couldn't describe what those differences were. And that's kind of been a theme that we've seen a lot with some of the sensory data. It's like, if differences are found, the panel has a really hard time describing what those differences are. And that kind of drives that, are these differences big? Do they really matter from like a consumer perspective? Like, would your typical beer consumer even realize that these hops were dried at different temperatures? And it's not saying that these differences are good or bad. They just exist and that they're really hard to characterize past that. Cool. Was that a surprise to you? Yeah, it was surprising because it's interesting when you have these discrimination tests and they are saying like, oh no, like these two samples are different. So they can tell that there's maybe something there, but then when you ask them to describe what it is there, you get a lot of noise in the data and nothing really significant comes out of it, which is like very interesting from a sensory and then statistics perspective, kind of figuring out like, okay, well, then what is different about these and how do we characterize that? Yeah, you're at this in- interface there with like a, a stimulus that is detectable, but it's just, you know, just enough detectable to, to say that there's something different, but not so strong as to be able to, everybody has unanimity and say, oh, it's, it's different because of this or that factor. And I think that with a lot of this too, is like we're finding because we are picking things like overall hop aroma intensity and like these key aroma attributes for each for these varieties that differences were found in that we're finding that these big like descriptors for these varieties aren't being found to be different. 
So you're not, there's, isn't any change in the aromatic quality that you would expect in that hop variety, like a citrusy aroma or resinous or um, descriptors Tropical, like that. Yeah. So maybe summarize what we've learned thus far from studying kiln temperatures. I mean, overall, we've learned that higher kiln temperatures reduces drying time, which is kind of a no-brainer. Um, and then the impact on hop chemistry is mild. The sensory impact is relatively modest, and you can significantly reduce the uh, enzymatic power of hops, so that hop creep potential, with using these higher kiln temperatures. Okay. And what about alternative kiln time and temperature programs, obviously our choices are not limited to deciding between 130 and 150. So that's kind of in 2020, we started probing this like, okay, can we use these dynamic treatments? So a high temperature on the front end of drying, like a 155 temperature to reduce the drying time in the kiln, but also denature some of those enzymes that are causing hop creep on the front end and then reduce the temperature on the back end of drying so that you don't overdry the bottom of the hops or the bottom of the hop bed. Because we see that in malting. They call, I forget the different terms, but like they do like a withering stage and then, you know, uh, there's a separate stage at a different temperature range. Correct. So, yeah. So we're kind of like kind of probing that. And then it kind of became a question too. It's like, well, with these higher temperatures, what does the energy utilization look like in the kiln? And can we reduce the energy input going into the kiln to better dry hops in a more sustainable way or more efficient way and then also create hops that are of you know equal quality to what they're getting now and i think what's what's interesting that kind of the next steps out of this is that you know these alternative drying regimes are are built off of drying regimes that growers are currently using that is they they typically will heat the bed up before they turn the, the the kiln to its set point so we're just sort of accentuating that to see whether there's more potential value in terms of uh, throughput for the kiln and one of the things that we think will happen is that there'll be some energy savings that occurs with this because when the burners are on you're you're burning fuel and and um and so if you have a, a high flow of air and you're calling for um you're calling for heat um even if it's uh, low heat the you'll be burning fuel so the the idea in the kind of the last stage of this trial is to get a sense on how much energy will be consumed. And, and Lindsay, you want to talk about some of the things that we've got going this year in terms of yeah. trying to get a handle on that? So we're working with the mechanical engineering department. Um, so there's a counterpart graduate student kind of working on this where we're having kilns instrumented with fuel flow sensors, hygrometers, um, sensors to measure electricity so that we can get a baseline throughout the harvest of what um, the energy input is for a particular kiln. So we're working with six different growers in Oregon and Washington, and we have one kiln instrumented at each of these six farms. And we're going to get a baseline of what it takes just drying hops in general using their regime throughout the harvest, but then drop in some of these accentuated dynamic regimes in, the, in that kiln that's instrumented uh, so that we can get an idea if there is an energy difference by adding this accentuated uh, high temperature upfront versus what growers are doing now. So that we can really start putting some solid numbers on this. We get baseline information and we get information on like, okay, if we change these drying regimes, what happens? And I guess that probably bring, brings a whole nother level of accuracy to sort of that carbon footprinting calculation, right? Absolutely. Because these, these are things that aren't necessarily have been measured yet, at least in this kind of research capacity and setting. Yeah, I think it's interesting to see that when we talk to growers, they know how much fuel they consume during harvest because they're topping up they're their fuel it. tanks. <laughs> yeah, they're buying it, right. But do they know, like, by variety? They don't. And so it'll be interesting to see wh what comes out of this because we certainly know certain different varieties dry at different, uh, require different drying times. And I think that's going to correlate pretty strongly with um, uh, fuel usage demand, which is probably the largest source of, of energy um, during the drying process. And there's some energy being consumed to keep the fans going or you know, to push the air through the bed. But the big one will be fuel. 
So it'll be interesting to see how different varieties, like the cost for fuel or the carbon footprint um, by, uh, by variety, and then how these uh, alternative experimental um, dry, I mean, drying regimes, how they influence overall energy usage. So correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like, generally speaking, higher kiln temperatures might not be so bad after all. They might not be the, the devil we thought they were. I, that's the way the data is playing out <laughs> from our perspective. Um, but we're really trying to get some numbers on like this energy perspective so that growers can kind of see growers and brewers aligned because the grower is going to do what the brewer wants because that is their customer. So if there's like substantial energy savings from a sustainability perspective for drying at a higher temperature and the aroma quality of the hops is not going to be impacted, then there's some, some really big wins, I think, for both sides. Since we're talking about sustainability, I suppose you also want to talk about the projects at OSU related to dry hopping. Yeah, the dry hopping uh, area is something that over the last 10 years is like brewers have embraced it. Um, the hop usage has gone up um, tremendously. Uh, I think the hop growers uh, like that as well because it's, there's been huge demand for aroma hops. But no one's been able to really quantify the efficiency or inefficiency of, of dry hopping. And I remember having a, uh, a question come up at a, like a, a CBC meeting long ago, 10 years ago, about you know, do you have a sense on how to do this? Have you ever thought about just measuring oil and the hops before and after and stuff so that's what a former graduate student dean hauser did we had we had a project going in the lab that scott lafontaine was running doing lots of small-scale dry hopping and dean just followed behind scott and every time scott was done he'd grab hops that came out of his dry hopping processes and go back and analyze them and start you know understanding okay what's left behind these are small scale we're talking like 40 liter dry hops um so they're larger than, you know, just one liter on the bench, but they're by no means close to commercial. And, um, and found that, okay, you know, the process is relatively inefficient. He did some work trying to characterize that and then did a little bit of exploration around other ways to try to improve it. Like uh, it's sort of probing at the idea that some brewers would do multiple dry hopping events during um, when, the, when the beer's in the cellar and, is that an effective approach? All right. So tell us about those pilot scale trials. Yeah. So what was interesting, like in the first case, I like this to see what, what gets extracted and how much gets extracted out of hops. Um, one of the, the things that I think that was probably the most surprising to us is that there's a lot of stuff that gets um, removed during the dry hopping process beyond why well, i might say beyond i mean more so than say hop acids and hop oil so we found that when we measured the hops before and after dry hopping and we accounted for how much beer was soaked up into those hops because the hops go into the to the uh, beer at say nine percent moisture and they come out even though you wring them out they're like 80 percent moisture of beer if you can remove the beer element uh, we find that there's like a, a third of the hop mass gets dissolved into or you know it's transferred into the beer and what was interesting to see is that not unsurprisingly there's not a lot of hop acids that get moved over because the hop acids are not very water soluble they don't really want to go into a solution and the same things with the oil so you know if we if we correct for how much of the um the overall losses that you see in a hop let's say roughly a third of the the hops being uh, or hops mass being extracted we're talking about like um simple and sort of complex or medium complex carbohydrates so things like simple sugars and maybe a little bit of pectin and minerals um as well as protein and then things like hop passes and oils all together collectively you lose about a third of the hop material during the dry hopping process. But when you account for that, the hop acid um, transfer is low 
um, you know, on average, maybe 50% of the hops get transferred into the beer. And um, the, as you've seen in other people's work, like John Paul May shows that, in fact, dry hopping might actually reduce things like ISOs. Um, and you get, you get some loss of, of, of um, hop acids via um, adsorption onto hop material. Anyway, that's not unsurprising because hop acids like alpha beta acids are not terribly water soluble. The oil components, those can move into the beer and, and um, on average, you might see roughly two thirds of the oil moving into the, the beer, but it's not like all the oil moves uniformly. The, the terpene alcohols, things like linalool, geraniol, these things are more water soluble than the sesquiterpenes like humulene and caryophylline. So when you look at the oil and the hop before you dry hop and you look in the oil when in the hop after you dry hop, you see a reduction in oil. Um, you certainly don't see um, a huge, like 100% transmission of, of oil into the, um, into the beer. We see a, a quite a sizable amount of oil left behind in the hops. But that oil composition has changed. That is, it's depleted not depleted, but it's certainly reduced in the tripping alcohols and enriched in the, the sesquiterpene and terpene, uh, like hydrocarbon fractions, which again is not unsurprising because the different components in oils have different um, water solubilities. None of them are tremendously water soluble, but, but some are more water soluble than others. So it, it's, it, it creates like at one point an, sort of an index for looking at at uh, a dry hopping efficiency, but it's not an entirely satisfying one because okay, the hop oil is so complex. Like, what do you put you know, your finger on to say to try to measure efficiency? If you're trying to increase efficiency, that is trying to extract as much uh, out of the the, the hop material. Um, and then, how does that correlate to sensory? Right, because like totally. you know, the, yeah. Yeah. yep, yep, so, exactly. So what? So when with Dean's work. Um, Talk about that. So he he um, he did sensory uh, along with the analytical stuff too, right? Yeah, right. So he's doing some sensory work on that, and and saw some, you know, some some interesting qualitative changes in terms of how the the, the beers responded. Um, but going back to the sensory element, um, one of the things that um, Dean was looking at, and Scott had looked at this as well, was as you put more and more hops into the dry hopping bill, how does that impact uh, the overall hoppiness of the finished beer? And certainly at low levels, like if you're put in, let's say, um, uh, well, if there's no hops, then you don't even have hop aroma. But if you put in a half a pound barrel, okay, you get, or 200 grams per liter, you get, a, you get an impact. And if you put in uh, 400 grams per liter, or a pound per barrel, oh, you can see there's a there's a bump in hop aroma, and it looks you know it's sort of linear, but it's two points. But as you continue to increase, like if you go from one pound to let's say two pounds or eight hundred grams per liter, or if you even do that again, go from two pounds to four pounds per barrel, diminishing returns. It's total diminishing returns. It's really surprising that that and like for Dean stuff that were replicated. And it was really confirming, confirming what Scott had done a number of years earlier. On a pilot scale, we couldn't tell the difference in hop aroma intensity between a four-pound per barrel addition and a two-pound per barrel addition. They had similar overall hop aroma intensities, which is kind of surprising. Uh, in some, well, surprising from the standpoint that in this case, you're paying 2x the hop charge if you're going to be doing four pounds per barrel. And have a lot lower yield. <laughs> and have a tremendously lower yield. Exactly. So that was Dean's work was confirming what we saw with Scott's work. And again, this is all on a pilot scale. We're talking 40 liter dry hops times two. So we have we do replicate dry hopping trials that we that we then blend together. So we have roughly 80 liters. But it's not like on a on a, a commercial scale. We have done some some commercial scale trials with participating breweries to look at this and we see that the the effect but it's a little bit diminished but the point is that there is a sweet spot um that just adding more and more hops doesn't necessarily get you more and more hop room intensity and that sweet spot is probably somewhere in the range of one to two pounds per barrel um because beyond that 
two to four pounds per barrel, we're not seeing a big, a big impact. So, should we, so then, should we talk about the, the single versus double? Yeah, exactly. I was going to say, so what's the impact if you split that up over time? Um, what, what did Dean find out in that regard? Yeah. So what we do know is that a number of brewers, many brewers will dry hop their beer multiple times, uh, double dry hopping, sometimes triple dry hopping. Some people even do more. Um, that there's like a, a part that we didn't study, which is just the inefficiencies of that. Every time you add hops, or particularly if you're transferring beer off of hops, you're losing beer. So the, the total yield part is going down. But from like a utilization of getting hop aroma into beer, um, that's what Dean was, was chasing. And so he looked at single versus double. That is, if you're going to take a 400 gram per liter or a one pound per barrel, he would just split that up into two. And he would do 200 grams per liter for 48 hours, transfer the beer off those those hops into uh, a new gassed keg that had another 200 grams per liter of hops and dry hop that a, a second time in comparison to one that he just dry hopped one pound per barrel for 48 hours. I mean, sorry, for, um, for what, 96 hours. So four days in total. And, and replicated that and compared that across these different concentrations and it was interesting to see that the double dry hopping events resulted in increased overall hopper room intensity across the board there's there's you know some variation sample to sample but the the general consistent trends were that a double dry hopping event resulted in a greater aromatic impact at least on a um pilot scale yeah, so it's it's like it's, there's a, an increased efficiency there. We've done a trial with a, a large brewery to look at that on a commercial scale, and the differences are more nuanced. Um, and and I would imagine that's probably the case because with if you're dry hopping a 400 barrel or a 800 barrel tank, the hydrodynamics of the dry hopping process are very different than when you're doing this on a 40 liter um, scale. But there is some interesting you know, potential there that, that the idea of doing a sequential dry hopping event is a potentially good thing from an aromatic um, efficiency perspective. All right. So the moral of the story is dry hopping is inefficient, but double dry hopping might be less inefficient. Less inefficient. Exactly. Yep. It's a great way to sum it up. <laughs> That was Tom Shellhammer and Lindsay Rubottom here on the Master Brewers Podcast. Check the show notes for a direct link to Lindsay's recent District Northwest presentation. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers Podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Brew Ninja, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. Stop.